Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I want to say that I was always a really good criminal. You become a person that maybe you never wanted to be. It becomes all about you. It becomes about if you have something that I want, then I'm just going to take it. I have no regard for you. I have no respect for you. Pastor Jose Hernandez grew up in Watts, a small city no more than two miles in radius in south-central Los Angeles. It's noted internationally for its landmark Watts Towers, but also for one of the worst riots in L.A.'s history. The Watts riots of August 1965 were motivated in part by allegations of police brutality and resulted in 34 deaths and over 40 million in property damage. After the riots, the influence of street gangs grew stronger and raised the level of violence in the neighborhood. Between 1989 and 2005, police reported more than 500 homicides in the two-mile radius, most of them gang-related. I think it was my innocence was stolen. You know, when, when you start to see evil, when you start to see somebody beat the crap out of someone to the point that they're unconscious without, without any kind of regard to their life, you know, those things, they, they do something to you. You know, when, when you see the drugs, when you see the trash, when you see... I never expected to live this long. I had friends, one of the guys who jumped me into the neighborhood. He was only 15 or 16 when he was murdered. So for me, it was like, this is my fate. But it wasn't his fate. Somewhere after gang life, incarceration, and a stint with the Mexican cartel, which would eventually lead him towards ministry and a legacy of leadership and healing in Watts. Today on the show, how does transformation happen? And what can we do when we are stuck in the muck of our everyday lives and change seems so far away? I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about teenage boys because I have one (laughs) and how quickly they turn from boys to men. My son is 15 and in the blink of an eye, he'll be 18 and an adult. And this story made me think about the role a father plays in his son's life. I've realized that it's really the big moments, of course, but it's all of the small moments in which we model the simplest and the most important of things, whether that is your interaction with the waiter or what it means to love a woman, to respect a woman, 
And just all of that constant little micro modeling about how to be an honorable man, a person of integrity in this world. And that that is a different model and a different example that I can set as a mother and as a woman. Yeah, it, it's not lost on me that I have a father-son story unfolding in my house every day and how important that is and how lucky my son is to have a present father. So I think to really understand any person going back to the beginning and those teenage years is always so helpful. So that's where our story begins. With 14-year-old Jose, there's a mom, a dad, two brothers, and a little sister. And the six of them are living in a one-bedroom apartment in Watts. At the time, they were prey, as one of very few Hispanic families living in the neighborhood. Jose's mom was robbed on a regular basis. If she had a watch, it was stolen, a piece of jewelry, it was taken, and his father, the man he looked up to, was violent and abusive. My older brother, who, when he was about 16 years old, he, he accidentally shot my little sister. Three years old, um, shot her with a 22 rifle accidentally. She's bleeding out. We're, we're living on 108th and Central. Martin Luther King is the closest hospital to us. And so we're not waiting for the ambulance to get there. I grab her. My mom and I jump in the car and my cousin's driving. And so we get to the hospital in a few minutes. I mean, we're like driving like a bat out of hell. They save her life. You know, she undergoes like 11 surgeries in one year and all these different complications and things like that. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is that when mom and I go back home to clean up, my mom was wearing denim, which was completely soaked in my sister's blood. She's three years old. LAPD's there. They're taking my brother in for questioning to find out what happened and things like that. And so we're, we're all standing outside and out of the corner of my eye, I see my dad drive right by the house. He didn't stop. He drove to this other woman's house that he was married to because he was married to two women, my mom and this other lady. He gets some clothes, he jumps on a plane and he leaves for Mexico. And so now he leaves my mom with a second grade education to fend for herself and her four children, one of which is fighting for her life in the hospital. And so imagine, you know, as a child, I'm 14 years old. Here's my protector. Here's my provider. Here's the person that I look up to leaving. It just kind of threw me into a life of, of that, of running away and not taking responsibility. And so that kind of set the tone for the rest of, at least until a certain point of my life. So, you know, you said your mom had a second grade education. Your father was married to two women. For people who don't know, who didn't grow up with that chaos, what does it mean to live in a home with a violent, abusive father as the figure? We never knew when he was going to come home. Like he would be home for a couple of weeks and he would get up really, really early in the morning and he would go to work and he would work really, really hard. And he had a great job, 
<laughs> but splitting your income between two households, it's, it's kind of rough. But the moment that you heard that truck pulling into the driveway, you knew that it's almost like you were taking account of your day. Did I do anything bad that's going to be reported to my father? You know, do I need to pick up? You know, like it was really like this anxiety. And now you understand it because of just the level of, of things that are available to us to understand our feelings and how, how things are processed and all that. But we're, we lived in fear. Like we lived in all out fear because my dad wasn't the one that was like, you know, like, hey, sit down, you know, let's talk, this and that. I'll give you a perfect example. As a child, I got a, an earring when I was like 13 years old. You know, it was popular and all that stuff. And, and so one day, you know, like he gets home, my mom tells him that. And, and of course, he's all like, let me see your ear. And a smart aleck that I was, you know, I showed him the, the right ear. And he said, no, the other one. And before I even turned my head completely, he punched me like a grown man punching a 13-year-old right in the face. That was my dad. And violent with your mom? Absolutely. Absolutely. In his household, you did what he said. He, he ruled the home with an iron fist. And it wasn't no question. It wasn't no take out the trash. Can I throw it out later? <laughs> Growing up, nobody ever said no. My mom... And, and to be quite honest, I, I feel as though my mom would offer us up as a sacrifice. I, I think that she knew what was coming. And it, and it wasn't like it was always on, but he comes home tired. He comes home frustrated. You know, I'm sure that all the, the weight of the life that he's living is on him. So he just wants peace in his home, right? Um, I think I was way younger. I probably was about seven or eight when when I remember waking up in the middle of the night to like a scuffle in the hallway. And I remember how my dad was dragging my mom by her hair and he was trying to like kick her out of the house. And I guess they must've had some kind of an argument about something in the house. And it was like, if you don't like it, then get the hell out. That's the way we lived. It's like, you didn't have a choice. If you didn't like the way it was here, then get the F out. This is my house. And that's how my dad was. I think that's a great point to have early in our conversation because yesterday you were saying understanding how a kid ends up on the streets, how a kid ends up as a gang member. One of the things is they don't want to be home because they'll be beat. They'll get the shit kicked out of them. And it sounds like you were one of those kids. Yeah, exactly. And so along the way, if you're hungry and you steal something, it's not always how people think it is. You know, there's always a story behind it. It really, There really is. Many Americans, and I would say most of the listeners who are hearing our conversation right now, don't understand what it means to live in, in poverty. Would you say you grew up in poverty? Absolutely. Yeah. So what does that entail? The, the fruit man. And a lot of people will like the fruit, man. So there was this truck uh, that would go up and down the street. And it was somebody who would pack up a truck with vegetables, fruits, 
tortillas, oil, all this stuff. And he would have a little ledger and he would come and he would give credit to people. And so my mom lived on credit, on this credit, you know, that she would buy the bare essentials, you know, tortillas, maybe eggs, beans, and rice. We had some kind of a protein, some kind of a meat every once in a blue moon. But, you know, we, we never went to the doctor as children. I don't think I, I think I went to the dentist the first time as an adult when I had insurance because it was always like on a, it was never proactive, you know, like, let's go see if what's going on with this or what's going on. Let's run some tests. It's like, no, like something's falling off or like something got chopped off. Like, let's go to the emergency room. And it was like that because we lived in poverty. The thing, though, is that my mom, either because of pride or because she never qualified, but we live right across the street from the welfare department. And my mom never once got food stamps. She never once got a, a welfare check. Like she would do crochet and sell it. She would sell Tupperware. She would take care of kids. I think at one point in time, she even did like people's laundry, but she would do whatever she had to, to kind of help us along the way. And then I started working when I was only 12 years old at a hardware store that's still there on 107th and Central. They would pay me 20 bucks a day and I would work Saturdays and Sundays to get, you know, name brand shoes or to kind of alleviate some of that burden off my mom. You know, we ate a lot of stuff that um, we ate nopales. A lot of people don't know that you can eat cactus. And my mom would make cactus, you know, and she would make cactus with eggs and, and a side of beans. And we always had salsa. But then there was those days when you only had tortillas and salsa or, or something like that. You know, like there was never an abundance of like chicken or beef or pork or anything like that. It was always the bare essentials. So at 13... On the steps of your junior high, Markham Junior High, right? Mm -hmm. You were jumped into a gang. Would you say there were some key markers or moments that led to joining the gang and being jumped in that day? I want to say that it was about survival. And so getting jumped into a gang was really a choice. But then I think any membership you have to pay dues. And so I think at the beginning, you don't understand that just because of the necessity of belonging, wanting to be part of something bigger, wanting to be protected, wanting to, because of all those things that you're lacking, but eventually it does come with dues. You know, you have to do things, especially when it comes to hierarchy. If someone higher up than you says that you're gonna do something, you're either gonna do it or you're gonna suffer the consequences. That's just the way you live. And even though you joined for all the right reasons, somewhere along the, the way, it just goes awry. So you're looking for belonging, yes. stability, a father figure, even if that's a group. Yes. What was the gang? Colonial Wants. What, what did jumping into the gang, what happened to you? So, so we went out to the field right there in Markham, and three guys... Uh, they they beat the crap out of you. You know, you're you're trying to defend yourself. Basically, it's kind of like qualifying for your black belt, but three guys are beating the snot out of you to see if you can hang, if you can fight. I mean, three guys, you know, after a while, you know, you, you kind of just give up. After that, you know, you, they pick you up off the floor, they shake your hand, and, and, you know, you're in. 
So the symbolism and the rituals about are you tough enough? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Blood in, blood out. There's going to be blood to get in and there's going to be blood to get out. And what does early gang life look like for you? What is your day-to-day, your week-to-week specific to the gang? For the most part, it was the same as far as like the daily kind of things go, because I still had to live under my parents' household. And But, you know, my, my dress began to change. Hanging out became a part of that, you know, because because now you're you're in your neighborhood and, and you're holding down the block. You know, you're making sure that nobody from another neighborhood's coming through or or things like that. You're posted up like at recess or like at your break during the school, like literally you're hanging out with all your homeboys. And I remember at Jordan High School, like I got kicked out several times. I didn't even make it past the administration building and there was already a fight against another neighborhood. And then there was those like literally like the movies, you know, there was going to be a brawl and you already knew like there was going to be a fight at, at nutrition or at lunchtime. And so sure enough, somebody started it and everybody had to jump in. And before you knew it, you're in handcuffs and you're getting escorted off to school. And yeah, that was a, a pretty typical week because it didn't happen every day, but it definitely happened at least once or twice a week. You talked about the hierarchy. How does your role progress as the years go on? What different roles did you play? I, I think for me, I was always just a soldier on the ground. If there was a fight, uh, took care of that. Is there guns, drugs, you know? Oh, yeah, there's always guns and drugs. There's always guns and drugs. I think by the time I was probably like 14, 15, I was already carrying a, a small firearm on a regular basis just for protection. But the thing is that I knew how to fight. That's the first option. But I got jumped too. I mean, like, so there was always, I was always one of those people who, who would defend myself. I wasn't that guy who, who went looking for stuff or like did stuff to people. There was some weird sense in me that always, that if I did something wrong, it would always find its way back to me. So I didn't do that, but I knew people who did. I, I would be sitting in a car with someone and this guy, it would be like, hey, get out, you know, like, like rob him, like take his stuff. And it's like, like, really? You know, and so it became a thing of like, if you didn't do what some of these older cats wanted you to do, then you're going to pay for it by getting your butt kicked. And so you just do things just to appease people. And then in some cases too, you you want those people to to kind of like accept you too. You're looking for a father figure. You know, you're looking to please that father figure. Is there an upside? Is there good? You're there for a reason, right? I mean, I think it speaks to why you're there, that you felt like you belong. You felt like you were protected. So I'm going to say good, but once you're there, I imagine there's a sense of security. Yeah, I mean, definitely that. You know, uh, one of the guys who I still am friends to this day who jumped me into the neighborhood, I would regularly go to his house and I would stay there. His mom would feed us. She would feed me. But he was... He was just like a badass. And when I was with him, and then he was a good-looking dude, too. And so the girls, the respect, the protection. So all those things are there. When there's money, you you partake of that. The protection and all that. But again, all those things come with, come with dues. 
Of course, yeah. So, but the status, right? It mm-hmm. comes with the money and now the girls. And, you know, I think it's hard for people to grasp the territories and the neighborhoods and how that all plays out with the neighborhoods and the gangs. Can you lay the land of that landscape? Once upon a time, it really was about protection in the neighborhood, right? It was about like people from the outside not coming in and, and either harassing or, or stealing or whatever from your own neighborhood. And then it became political. And then honestly, it was just invisible lines that are drawn out. And between these lines, you know, like if you catch someone that's not from your neighborhood and asking them to leave is, is a polite way of saying that you're going you're gonna to push them out by any means possible. But there are those those streets. I mean, we can jump in the car right now and drive somewhere right now where you're going to see an element of criminals hanging out on a block. And now more than ever, I think it's a lot more to do with drugs. It's a territory where this is where the drug spot is at, down the street or a couple blocks away. There's the dope house, you know, the, the stash house, things like that. And so it becomes a, a protecting a business. But yeah, there's those blocks right now. Where you go down the street and you see all the cars, you see all the guys, you, you smell all the, the weed smoke. And believe me that, that you're going to get, at minimum, you're going to get questioned. Who are you? Why are you here? That's minimum. And, and that'll be a good day. But sometimes it gets a lot uglier really quick. In 19, you became involved with the Mexican cartel. How did that transpire? And what was your role with the cartel? So I want to be really careful in how I answer that. I graduated high school in Bell Gardens. Got kicked out, got kicked out. I almost got shot a couple of times. I went to Mexico. I was there for a year. Came back the 11th grade. My parents have moved for safety reasons. And so when, when we get back, you know, I was smart. I think I graduated with a 3.83 or something like that from high school. So I went to the Navy. I went to the Navy, but I didn't make it because I was always taught to quit. I was taught that I was a loser. And so I just couldn't endure the, the discipline. I didn't have that discipline. So when I get back, you know, I get a job. I get my girlfriend pregnant. I lose my job. I can't find a job because I was being honest. I was telling everybody I got fired. So I couldn't get a job. So my dad introduces me to some people that he knows. You know, back in the day in the in the early 90s, you know, pagers and, you know, like brick phones. And like, it, it started as, I'm the only one who knows English. I'm the only one who can go across the border. So I'm buying cell phones, I'm renting houses, I'm buying cars, I'm starting businesses. That's how it started, to launder money. And I wasn't doing it. I was just the one that was sent out to, to do the things that needed to get done. And how do you exit the cartel? You don't. I, I guess the, the, the good thing that came out of me going to jail is that when you get locked up, people don't trust you anymore. They're wondering why, why and how did you get out? You're a liability, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you got caught. Back in, the, in those days, in, in the early 90s, and even before that, it was, working for a cartel was a lot different. It, it was a lot different. It was a lot of family. They still didn't, like, cut your head off or, like, peel your face off and put it on a basketball. 
It wasn't like that yet. <laughs> it wasn't like that. The person that I worked for, you know, it was like family. But more than anything, it was like just you keep your distance and all that. Now you'll probably end up dead now if they don't want you around anymore. We'll be right back. For every episode of All the Wiser You Hear, we donate $2,000 to charity. Today's episode benefits Hope Central Watts. Hope Central Watts is a church bringing hope and love to the people of Watts and is led by Pastor Jose Hernandez. You can find out more about the life-changing work of Hope Central Watts at hopecentralwatts.com. We're back, and things are not going well for Jose. He and his wife split up, and he didn't know how to handle it. He committed some serious crimes, and he ended up in a maximum security prison, or supermax, a prison system designed to house inmates described as the most hardened criminals. I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to express my frustrations, my struggles, my anger, all those different things. And so as much as I didn't want to be like my dad and I vowed not to be like my dad, I became exactly like my dad. And so my wife, you know, like I, I would beat her too. Like I put my hands on her, something that I vowed never to do. I met my wife when I was 17 and she was 15. And so by the time she was 17 and I was 19, we had our first son. So he's 30 years old now. So we had split up and and it was almost like I was drowning. And in desperation, I was trying to, because she was still living in our old apartment. She kept everything. And instead of me trying to figure out a way how to really fix things, like I was going to make her do what I wanted her to do. I threatened to kill her. I threatened to kill myself. And and so I had an AK-47, and I had a 9mm, and I had a ton, a buttload of rounds. I've always known how to use guns. My dad was ex-military, so he showed us how to use guns since we were kids. But in all that, I get drunk, I'm drinking pills. I forgot what I was doing. I was just like being an idiot. Because I wanted her to like say, yes, you know, we're going to fix things, and everything's going to be all right, and this, that, and the other, which it wasn't. So the alcohol and the pills that I took... <laughs> Like I just fell asleep. I forgot how it happened that I laid down or whatever on the couch and I fell asleep. And in the middle of the night, she left. She hid my gun. And I remember the phone waking me up. It was ringing and ringing. And my son was about a year and a half, my oldest son. And uh, the phone's ringing, ringing, ringing. And I'm like, you know, running around the, the apartment like, where the hell is she at? And I couldn't find anything. And so I pick up the phone and it's the Southgate Police Department and they're like, you know, we have the, the place around it. We need you to come out with your hands up. And it was raining, I remember. It was like in January. I mean, I wasn't going to get into a shootout with the cops or anything like that. Everything that I've ever had as far as weapons went, it was always for self-defense. And I just walked out, raining, barefoot. I think I had socks on. Walked outside and was arrested and was charged with kidnapping and spousal abuse, domestic violence, all kinds of, I forgot, it was like nine charges. It was right around the O.J. Simpson time where everything was crazy with domestic violence. 
And I remember the judge literally told me, like, I'm going to make an example out of you. Explain to me the racial tension at that time and what you witnessed behind bars. So this was my first time being incarcerated. I had been taken to Southeast several times and questioned and things like that. But I end up in this place. So I don't know the politics. I don't. But it's very political. So if you're Hispanic, you stay with the Hispanics. If you're black with black, white with white, Asian with Asian. So I'm in the county and I'm getting ready to transfer to to Magic Mountain, to Wayside. And I remember that there's two banks of phones, one on the left, one on the right. And the ones on the right, they're all taken up. All these guys are on the phone. And I didn't consider the fact that they were all Hispanic. And then on the right, no one's on the phone. So I go up to it, I grab the phone, and I start to make my phone call. And this black dude comes up to me and says, hey, bro, that's a black man's phone. And I'm like, uh, and I just hang it up and I walk away. I didn't know. We we're in the, in the chow hall. And this black dude asked me to give him, to pass him the Kool-Aid. And so I just handed it to him. I mean, my first girlfriend was black. I grew up in Watts. My best friends were black. So for me, I didn't understand that. And so I hand them the picture of Kool-Aid to the guy that asked me for it. And so this Hispanic guy pulls me aside. He's all like, he's telling me off, like, don't ever do that again. Like, you don't do that. So all those things, you know, helped in, in making my decision that being incarcerated was not for me. Uh, there was a saying back in the day, which I don't think is true anymore, is that if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Would you say that your spiritual awakening and your path to your relationship with God started in jail? Absolutely. You know, God is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. And I think I, I was in the place where things were right to begin a process. And so I was there. It sucked. There was always this tension. And every once in a while, like, there was a fight. And it was always between Black and Hispanic, Black and Hispanic. And the thing is that you're Hispanic, you have to, like, do something. And so Sundays, you would have the call Anybody like to go to chapel, you know, like this is the time, blah, blah, blah. And then they would make a call and they would let you out to go to chapel. And so I'm like, I get to get out of here for a few hours. I just want it out. And then you would go. Obviously, I didn't understand what they were talking about at that point. I didn't understand how to read a Bible. I didn't know who God was. I mean, I was doing it for selfish reasons, but I, I really truly believe that that's where God found me and began the process of transforming my life. And so, you know, you and I spoke yesterday and you were talking about, you really just were scratching the surface on your transformation. So I guess talk to me about the early days of discovering your faith. And then, you know, what was the next chapter for you after you were released? So I was incarcerated for six months and then I got out. And then the next step was really just trying to figure out how to survive. And so living on my brother's floor in South Central. And then I got an opportunity. You know, I got a job at a company. First time ever working for a corporation. I remember 
having two changes of clothes and two ties and wearing like wingtips. I'm working in Century City. and But with that, and because of my eagerness and just ability to pick up things really quick, I began to excel and they began to show me all these things. But I realized that early on in my transformation, it was more like I was seeking God for what he can give me. I wanted a genie in a bottle. I, I wanted my wife back. And so for me, it was like, I remember thinking like, God gives you stuff, right? Like, you know, but I just didn't understand. And I know now that it was part of the process because for 10 years, I had to walk this life and, and along the way be transformed. And there was a lot of things that I had built up for myself that had to be removed. I was very controlling. And eventually I got back together with my wife, but I was still controlling. I was still, you know, a hustler. I was still a cheater. I cheated on my wife every opportunity that I could. Well, yeah, you said it was, you were still hustling and this was just a new hustle. And it happened to be in Century City in an office overlooking Beverly Hills High School. But you're clearly smart and savvy and working your way up. Yeah. I mean, I was wearing a suit. Most people thought I was an attorney working at all these different law firms in Century City. And, you know, I wore the same suits, I wore the same shoes. But yeah, it was definitely, it was just a different hustle. I was on a process, but I hadn't gotten there yet. You know, you've said eventually you would come back to the place that you had taken so much from being Watts. When I imagine transformation for all of us, right, is an ongoing process. But when do things really evolve and shift for you and making the decision? Because I imagine once you're there, right, you're in the office, you're away from the neighborhood, a lot of people would stay there and you chose to come back. So what happened inside of you and what was the path back to Watts? My whole life, I believe, has been just a series of things that have been preparing me to come back to a place to serve. And so I was at the top of my game, if you want to call it that. I had gotten as far away from Watts as I possibly could. I was making great money. I was driving a nice car. I had a 401k. I made a great salary. I had sold my first house. I bought my second house. But again, it was just things. The transformation process, I believe, is a process, a lifelong process, but it's a lifelong process of grace. Because even though you're being transformed, you're being renewed, you're becoming a different person, you still make mistakes. And so I end up divorced, sell the house, I buy another, some apartments, I get sued, I sue them back. So all these things, I mean, it's just a crazy thing. Like I could do like a telenovela, you know, like a... a so life is still messy. Yeah, it, it is. But I chose God. Like I felt like I wanted this, but I got something better instead. And I started to serve at my church and I started to serve across the border at, at an orphanage every three months. And as I was starting to serve and help other people, I realized, well, my situation is not that bad. You know, I have a great job. I'm still making plenty of money. still have a 401k. Yes, I'm in an apartment, which is in a nice area in Downey. I drive a nice car. 
you know, it doesn't break down. Gas is always full. You know, I have food in the refrigerator for my kids. I pick them up on Wednesdays and every other weekend. And so like all those things were working out. And so I began this process. But one of the things of transformation I really believe is that there's a difference between us saying, I give my life to God and I surrender. Because giving is different than surrendering. And I believe that in 2004, I completely surrendered. And I surrendered my will. And I was like, God, whatever you want to do with it, I will do. And I remember that early on, on this 2004, 2006, I kind of felt that inkling of going into ministry, becoming a minister, becoming a pastor. And someone prophesied that over me and said, you're going to be a pastor one day. And I laughed at him because of all my background, all my baggage, all the things that I had done in the past. I'm like, yeah, no. Because I, be- I thought that God couldn't use someone like me. And that's where it began in 2006, where I, I began to get that like stirring in my heart. And then, of course, the one place that I said I would never go back to, God began to give me a heart for, which is wants. So you go to the school of ministry. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about how much healing this community needs, and you can't fix what you don't understand, right? And you understand it in your core, in your soul, what the solutions are. One of them being fathers, right? And the role that you now play to so many kids in this community as a father figure and a spiritual leader. So what did it look like to come back to Watts? And what was your vision? What was your hope? You know, interestingly enough, when I was in the school ministry, God gave me an address right on the corner of 109th and Central. Well, the park where I used to play at as a kid is on 109th between Central and Compton. The The vision was to start a church in the neighborhood. And so in September 11, 2011, we planted the church there at the park, and we had been there for about eight years before the pandemic. And the name of the church is? Hope Central Watts. And so 30-something years after I left, I came back to serve the community that God had called me to. And so really the vision is to reach our community with hope. And, and obviously the solution is our next generation. And these kids that are suffering, that are going through so much, I'll, I'll give you this much. The hoodie kids of the projects, they're the solution. But we have to invest in them. Because unfortunately, the drug dealers, the pimps, the pushers, all of them, they're investing in them too. We're losing the battle because we're investing in the ones that that show potential. But in order for us to see the potential of these kids, we have layers to get to before they will, they'll even let us see that potential. I was one of them. And, you know, we have a friend in common, Claire, who introduced us, and she was saying one of the many things that make you so special is there is a lot of organizations identifying kids in these vastly underserved neighborhoods that have potential and supporting those kids. And you're actually the guy who is nurturing, loving, showing up for consistently the kids that don't, people don't see that they have potential or they haven't identified that right outwardly. You know, I also read about you, you know, very succinctly and articulately 
said, well, well intended, people think these kids need, you know, a backpack or shoes. And what they really need is someone to drive them to the DMV, someone to help them print a resume, someone to go shoot hoops with them. And that type of work, so Hope Central is much more than a place that people come on Sunday, but it is the role you play in so many lives in this community. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that I misunderstood when I wanted to plant a church because I came from a really big church and everything you needed, the children's ministry, the this ministry, the that ministry, like if you needed something, they had where to plug you in. But when I came here really quickly, I realized that what people here needed was for people to do life with them. When was the last time that you've heard of a youth pastor taking kids to the social security office so that they can go get an ID, so they can go get a birth certificate. Our uh, youth pastor is Korean, and he walked into the office right here on Florence to get birth certificates for three black kids. We love them, and they know that because we needed their birth certificate so that we can get IDs because we were taking them to a camp in Missouri. This was about four or five years ago. So taking them to the DMV and letting them use our car to do their driving test so that they're not driving illegal, you know, without a license. And when they do need a backpack, when they do need shoes, you know, getting the call, hey, you know, uh, these kids want to make some money to go buy a video game. Okay. Have them wash the van, the church van, have them wash the car or clean the house when we used to have a house on the 109th. So we were teaching them work ethic it's really hard for a young man who was born in, into a welfare system where two parents have never worked a day in their life to get a job. And I had one of these kids. He was living with me for two years at the Hope House. And one day I asked him, go buy a money order so you can pay your rent. And he says, Pastor Jose, I don't know how to be a man. What is a money order? No one's ever taught me how to do any of this. And it just blew me away. But I realized that this kid, at he was probably like 18 or 19. That means that for 19 years of his life, his parents had never worked a day in their life. But it's easy to look at him and say, well, yeah, he's a risk or he's a liability or he's like, it's, it's just too much work. But the fact of the matter is that I was too much work. So for me, Yes, it's challenging, but it's almost like I don't have a choice. And I know that all of his life experiences are just going to make him even better in the long run. Can you explain Hope House? I know it closed as a result of COVID. So my vision was always to have a place where not only kids, but community members, families can come. Now, in the middle of this chaos, there was a house that everything was in order. Everything was remodeled. Everything was in its place. We had Wi-Fi. We had laptops. We had printers. We had a washer and dryer. We had bunk beds. And so the kids would come there after school. They could do their homework. They get tutored. They get mentored. But these were not the kids that showed potential. These were the kids that were from the projects that are, in some cases, gangbanging. But they knew that there was hope there. They knew that they can come there and that they would get help. 
So the Hope House was really to bridge the gap in our community, no matter who you are. And so youth group would have their thing there on Fridays. And sometimes we had like 50 kids before the pandemic from the projects hanging out. They would get fed and they would get an encouraging word. We would do sleepovers. One weekend we would have the boys. One weekend we would have the girls. And then we do like all these different activities out of there. I think easily, easily, we probably cooked about half a million plates of food out of that house. We went through three different stoves because we would only have the regular house stoves. We needed a commercial one because we would make so much food. But Sundays after church, all the kids would just literally walk across the street. The ladies would always make something to eat. We had a big screen TV. We'd put on some cartoons for the kids. And I have pictures of the kids just laying on their tummies, watching TV, all smiles, tummies full, hearts full. And, and that's, that's what I get to do. Next week, you're taking 37 kids from Watts to camp. Where's the camp again? Oakhurst. Oakhurst. There's a massive disparity for these kids and most kids in America. But it, what I've come to understand is, is that gap gets really widened in the summer months. The other thing I understood being here a few weeks ago was there's no air conditioning in the projects. The temperature inside is upward of 100, and the parents who are at times trying to be responsible don't want their kids to go outside because of the gangs. So that's their reality. They're not at camps. They're not doing summer school. But you're doing something different. So explain what you're doing with your camp and the needs you're meeting. Because before we started, you said there are kids that are just excited to go because they get to sleep in a bed and they know they'll have three meals in a day. So we're taking these kids to camp and, and for four days, three nights, they get to be safe, they get to be loved, and they get to experience something that in other cases they might not experience at all. But some of the needs that we're feeling is it's really basic. We would think that in Southern California, right, that there are still food deficiencies or inefficiencies. I, don't, I, I really don't know how to say that, but we have kids who think that chili cheese Fritos is dinner. They, they don't get a regular meal at breakfast. You know what I don't have to do in the morning is get them up to come to breakfast. They will be there at breakfast sharp at 8.30 a.m. And they get eggs, sausage, bacon. They get the whole nine yards, right? Juice, milk, and all that. These kids don't experience that. You know, these kids, if you walk into some of their homes, and I would invite any anybody to go to one of our kids' homes, and you walk in and some of these kids sleep on the floor. Some of these kids, you know, I mentioned that we had a washer and dryer at the Hope House because some of these kids will show up for camp next week with a trash bag with two or three changes of clothes, and they're probably going to be dirty. And some of these kids don't know how to express themselves, the, the embarrassment, what they're going through. I had a kid last summer who was just, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. Pulled him aside, and finally he told me why he wanted to go home. He was wearing his sister's shirt 
because he didn't have any other shirt and he didn't have anything to put on to go in the pool and everybody else is in the pool. And so it's like, will you be okay if I go buy you some clothes right now? And sure enough, he's like, okay, I'll stay. Went to Big Five, the town over, spent a couple hundred bucks and bought him and another kid some clothes. We're doing that this week. Before we leave next week, we're going to take extra socks, extra underwear, extra basketball shorts, extra swimming trunks. You know, I just ordered from Sam's, you know, like toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorant. Most of these kids don't use deodorant. So we're going to take all this stuff and we're making all this expense so that these kids don't have an excuse to not really enjoy. What percentage of the kids you're working with are fatherless? 90% or more. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that your story, you begin with a very absent, violent father. And, and as I said, you know, you're playing the role, this fatherhood role to these kids who have none. I'm curious about your own reconciliation with your past and your trauma, right? And you were a victim and you were a perpetrator. So there has to be healing for all of that. But what did that healing look like for you so you could be in a position to heal the city and heal the kids that are living in so much pain and trauma? It had to be a, a real understanding of forgiveness. With my past, as far as what I perpetrated on my ex-wife, was listening to her one day telling me how she wanted to commit suicide because she was with me. And that just broke my heart. And, and so having to take responsibility for that and to say that I was sorry. But then on the other hand, to forgive my father for all the things that he had done and, and where he had been absent and, and the things that I lacked because of who he was. And to be able to forgive him was also so important. But then also to understand that even though my father here on earth really didn't care for me up until that point, that my father in heaven was always there. Many a times I should have died. Many a times I should have died and I didn't. You know, I've been shot at dozens of times. I was shot and I'm still here and God has blessed me. And, and here I am now serving the community. And, and, and it really had to take that to be able to forgive and also to take responsibility. And today you're a father and you're a grandfather. You have three kids from your first wife, and you have an eight-year-old son yes. at home. And how many grandkids? I have three. What type of father are you today? Ouch. Um, to, to say about a father, I would probably say my daughter. You know, she's 22. She's traveled the world already. She's educated. She's on her last year at uh, university. And so with her we're able to talk even when we fight or when we have arguments. She tells me that at least I talk to her. And I think I've come to a place where I'm able to, to really listen, forgive, but also ask. I was my dad when I was younger. And so with my oldest son and my, my other son, it was a lot different. 
And then, you know, I have my eight-year-old who, you know, we just we just do so much together and I'm super blessed to to do that. You know, you thought you would be dead as a teenager. You were very much alive. You're here as a leader and a healer in this city and you're, you know, a present father and grandfather. Could that little boy have ever imagined who you are today? No. Um, a few years back, working with city government and for a Christmas event, I just stood at the corner of 103rd and Compton. That's where the Civic Center is. That's where the bank is. That's where the post office is, right? Where OP is at, right there. And between Compton and Success on 103rd, we had that whole street closed off. And I just stood there for a second when the stage was being built, the streets being closed off, like all these people are showing up. And I just remembered being a kid walking these streets without an ounce of hope, always looking around the corner, always watching my back because I never knew where that bullet was going to come from or where that person was going to run up on me from. And here I am and we're closing off the street. We have like 5,000 gifts for kids for Christmas. We had snow on the ground. Like it was just crazy because as a child, I never had hope. I never knew opportunities. You know, I had never gone outside of this radius of Watts, Compton, South Central. So I never knew that there was this great, big, incredible world out there. And here I am being used of God to command all these parts, you know, this goes here, that goes there. And and then to be on a stage in front of thousands of people, just sharing what God has done with a punk kid like me, you know? What is your greatest hope for Watts? My greatest hope for Watts is true transformation that can only come through God. I really believe that the best thing about Watts is its people. Most of our kids and most of our families, one of the qualities they have in all the, the muck and mire and murkiness and chaos is that they are resilient. Like I cannot imagine these kids, what they go through and they still keep going on. Like they still keep getting up every morning. And, and so if we could just take that resilience and almost like a coal and put the pressure in the sense of the mentorship, they can become diamonds. Yeah. I would say most of our community, they're diamonds in the rough. And some are just a lot rougher than others. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from your story? I really believe that wherever you are in life, you can make a difference if you're just willing. I believe that if you're in a funk, and that's kind of easy because of what we just come out of, if you're challenged, I remember a pastor saying this, here's five ways to get out of, of any funk. One, go help someone. Two, go help someone. Three, go help someone. And I realized that when I go and I help someone, 
I realized that, you know, I don't have it that bad. And some people and kids and in these communities that are sometimes just a, a small drive away, they need help. Well, it encapsulates, I think, so much of your life story because you're helping the city has been your process of healing, right? Healing in community and healing in connection. So the helping is actually an incredible healing tool for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I am so glad that Claire introduced us and that you were willing to have this conversation with me today. And we're going to end with something a little fun. Okay. You game? Yes. All right. Let's do it. Three things on your bucket list. Uh, go to Europe. Probably like swim with sharks and, uh, and jump out of a plane. Sounds all sound fun. <sighs> Binge worthy show. Ooh, uh, SEAL team. Best piece of advice you've ever been given. If you make an error, let it be an error in grace. In 10 years, I hope to be. I hope to be overseeing a Christian academy in Watts. Awesome. And thank you for your time and your honesty and your heart. And God bless. Thank you so much. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John Lasala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Before we go, don't forget to check out our new All the Wiser Facebook group. You can share your thoughts on this episode and anything else you may have on your mind. And as always, we'd be grateful if you'd show your support in one or more of the following ways. You can post about the show on your social media, share your favorite episode with a friend, or write us a review on whichever platform you're listening to right now. Even just one of those actions goes a long way in growing our All the Wiser community. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.